Welcome to Ogle of Lanagus. Conversations in Irish mythology. With the story archaeologists. Chris Thompson. And Isolde O'Gollacorn Carmody. Please go to storyarchaeology.com for articles, stories and much more. We do this for the love of it. If you'd like to help out by making a donation through the website, feel free. Series 6, Circling the Toyn. Episode 5, The Wooing of Emer, who Cullen meets his match. Cullen asks Emer, So how do you call yourself, girl? Ni answer, all an ingen. Tever barn, bornya ingen, an king gensa. Guess nod for foevter. There could not take enough. Dorp and Nobber. Anzir in more. Tetra. Tetra da lua. Luaker nod im tether. Ingen rig. Riches gardi. Connor nod for oifter. The Connor coil er voif. Gonad frisuan shen bath, shretev cared, ad chlossev ered. I am the Tara of women, the whitest of girls, the champion of chastity, a prohibition which is not countenanced, a watchman who sees no one, a worm out of darkness. A noble lady of Tethra. A scald crow's two feet for kicking. A reed which none approaches. The daughter of a king. A flame of honour. A way that cannot be accepted. I protect myself from the road of incest. So that... Against the stupor of ancient death, the arrays of craft, the vain glory of chariot fighters do not avail. I've been looking forward to getting to this episode for some time now. Yes. <laughs> now, long before I ever came to live in Ireland, and that was more than 26 years ago now, mm. I was fascinated by some of the characters who appear later in this text. Oh, yes. We have the mysterious warrior women of Skarthuk and Uathuk and Ifa, and, of course, their training methods. But before all that, we get to meet the wonderful Emer, who takes on the challenge, let us say, of this young and immature Kuh. Yeah, there's a lot to Emer and a lot more than at first meets the eye. Oh, yes. And so this is going to be very interesting. Mm -hmm. But I suppose first we should identify the text that we're using. Yes, we're looking at the text, which is called Tokvark Evera, The Wooing of Emer. They appear in the manuscript records as Middle Irish texts, but with an old Irish core. And that old Irish core has Mm. some very early language. It goes back to possibly... 600, so 600 to 900. That is early. It is. It's some of the earliest literature I think we have. There's an awful lot of interpolation, though, as you might expect, particularly in the Leverna Hidra version, which is mm-hmm. the one we're largely using here. But that's not unusual for LU 
it does have a lot of very early literature with some very late mm-hmm. additions to them. This isn't part of the main Poinbokulnya text per se, but it is the last tale that's listed as a rave scale. And that list comes in that story of the rediscovery of the Thine. We're basing our discussion largely on Kuno Meyer's edition and translation of the with, LU text. With some new translations of your own. Yes, particularly those rather tricky Rusk passages. But we'll get to those later. We will, definitely. <laughs> now, our story begins with another colourful description of life at Concover's energetic court of our Lucca. And of course, the wealth and luxurious nature of the place is described in some detail. There are descriptions of these carvings of red yew, and particularly Concover's own bedchamber with its boards of silver, its pillars of bronze, and this glitter of gold over all of it. But it doesn't mention anything about the softness of the mattress, though. No, it doesn't. The description, though, is more like that of a king's royal throne than just his bed. Yes. The term in the original text is imza, and it's a bit tricky to translate. I suppose a bed nook would be a way to think of it. In Dictionary of the Irish Language, it talks about it as a compartment or a cubicle within a large hall that contains the couch for sleeping. An apartment in a great house is how O'Curry describes it. But what I quite like is that there are some extended poetic uses and that always tells us a bit, I think, about Mm -hmm. the implications of what the word means. And those poetic uses include a bird's nest, a serpent's lair, an ass's stable, the source of a spring, and possibly even the cover for a spear, like a sheath for a spear, and of course as with any bed, a grave or a tomb. But here it's the king's nest. It is. Nest, I think, is a very good way to think of it. (laughs) He's nesting in his palace. Yep. (laughs) It's a man cave. (laughs) But the text also mentions a a silver board or or a pole above the king's seat that he could strike when he wanted silence. Now, we've got the apple branch again, haven't we? Yeah, here it is again, that silver branch. And we keep finding references to it Mm -hmm. in, if you like, more literal situations than its mythical origin story. But this text goes on then to praise, of course, the warriors who are surrounding the king. And this includes particularly 12 Eredes, and an Ered is a chariot fighter. Splendid, lavish and beautiful were the valiant warriors of the men of Ulster in that house. Of course, and they have a lavish lifestyle. Oh yeah, there were great and numerous gatherings of every kind in that house. Wonderful pastimes. There were games and music and singing. Heroes were at their feet. Poets sang. Harpers struck their sounds. Mm. But this description is there to create an aural picture. What would now, in a film, be the visual establishing shot? Yes. So now, though, the fun really starts as these chariot fighters... These elite warriors. Oh, yes. Who are named, as some of our familiar friends, Conal Cairnach. There's Fergus McRoich, who's called the Truly Bold. <laughs> Loigra Buadach, and many others... One in particular that I like is Scheil McBardna, who is the doorkeeper. And Scheil, of course, means news. That's a good name for a doorkeeper. Isn't it? Yeah. Anyway, they begin to demonstrate their famous feats and particularly those 
familiar named feats. We have the spear feat and the apple feat and the sword edge feat. Now, Cahulam fans may recognise some of these names. Oh, yes. And we might get to we them. We will next time. Yeah, next go time. Go through the feats in some detail. Yeah. However, the text does attempt to describe one of these antics. The chariot fighters of Ulster were performing on ropes stretched across from door to door in the house at our... You know, it sounds like tightrope walking. It does, but I suppose a lot of acrobatics would be part of martial arts training or showing off your dexterity and well, flexibility. Well, it makes sense, but it must have been a bit chaotic. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Indoor tightrope walking. But this whole lavish and entertaining description is largely there to prepare the way to introduce the best of the bunch, the top dog. Da, 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 da. Don't tell me. Koholan, I presume. Absolutely. And as you might expect, he surpasses them all. But what follows is interesting. We're introduced to him very much in the way he was described at the end of our last episode. And it includes some of those unusual attributes that are associated with his warp well, spasm. Including the seven fingers and toes. Oh yes, and even the seven pupils of his kingly eyes. Here he has four pupils in one eye and three in the other. <laughs> I don't know how he manages that. Nor do I. But He's also said to possess more traditional noble gifts. He has the gift of fiddle playing, the gift of feats, of course, the gift of calculating, the gift of soothsaying, and the gift of shapeliness. Mind you, his gift of prudence seems to be only connected to his abilities to control this warp spasm warrior flame. Well, yeah, so he doesn't accidentally start slaughtering everybody. <laughs> There's another curious gift mentioned, and that's the gift of Boonfar. What's that? Well... It's very curious. Boonfuck is another one of these board games, very much like Fichel and Brown Dove, and they're often all mentioned together. The name itself could mean something like Eternal Strike, or even possibly Everlasting Levies, which makes me think of the Fovera exacting their tribute. But it's a good name for a game. It is. It's presumably another asymmetric strategy board game. Mm. But they sound like the video games of their time. I think they really were. You could imagine an Eternal Strike <laughs> being released. Everlasting Levies! <laughs> on the PS4, you know? <laughs> so Cullen's three faults are listed as well, but they're not too damning, to be honest. <laughs> Apparently, he's too daring too beautiful and he cannot grow a moustache because he's too young uh. <laughs> he missed out his greatest flaw which is he's too modest but his main fault really seems to be that all the women of Ulster find him completely irresistible or the other way around in spite of his superfluous fingers and toes well they might not be so superfluous right. perhaps well Anyway, it's also worth remembering that while he may look like an adolescent, he is, in fact, still a child. He's a seven-year-old. This is quite ridiculous, but yeah. it's just part of the story. Exactly. But yeah. then it's said that he's more than twice the size and three times the strength. And Exactly. So he looks like a grown-up, but yeah. he just hasn't been around that long. No, he hasn't. <laughs> he certainly hasn't. But the men of Ulster decide that really Cuchulain ought to take a wife, and they hope that this might mean he leaves their wives and daughters alone. <laughs> And they also feel, or at least Cuthbert has proclaimed, that it, he may well die young and it would be good to pass on these remarkable genes. 
So Concover sends out nine men into each province to search for the daughter of any chieftain or law or lord who might suit the young hero or will have him. Yeah. However, after a year, they return without having found one suitable candidate. Yes, but as you might expect, Cuchulain takes the task in hand himself. He doesn't need anyone to find him a girlfriend. <laughs> he goes off with his charioteer, the trusty Loy Macriangavra, to meet up with a young woman that he already knows, who is in Lugluchtaloga, Emer, the daughter of Fergal Monarch. Now... Is Fergal's dune in Bray? The text keeps mentioning Bray. It does. It's not the Bray in in North Wicklow, I don't think. It might just be a transliteration for Mog Brega, which is a plain that encompasses parts of eastern County Meath and, and north North County Dublin. That would make more sense. It does, yeah. And it's in terms of the directions that are described that the hero that, that Cahulan comes from and goes back to. Exactly. It's also closer to his territory of Murthovna. Mm. But there are also implications that this place has other world associations. Well, we'll come back to that yeah. later. But anyway, who is this Fergal Monarch? Well, the way that Meyer translates it, he says that Monarch is wily. So he calls him Fergal the Wily. But in fact, I think that's a little bit pejorative almost. Mon means a feat or a skill or a trick. So he could actually be Fergal the craftsman Mm -hmm. or even Fergal the trickster. Mm, That's interesting. Yes, I think that tells us a bit more about Mm -hmm. him. Anyway, Cuchulain finds the young woman sitting on the field outside the dune with her foster sisters and she's teaching them the art of fine needlework. Now, here, her gifts are listed as well, but they're not particularly unusual ones. They're not, but the most important one to note is this gift or accomplishment of sweet speech, what we might call eloquence. I think that's really key to understanding Emer. Cuchulain is suitably impressed with her recounting of her gifts. He has, after all, stated that he will not woo anyone who is not his equal in age, beauty and skill. (laughs) It seems that Ema fulfills this condition. She's a lot more than seven years old. Uh, Yes, she is. (laughs) So he put on his best clothes. In fact, the outfit he's worn at the Oinark. He's clad himself in his brightest bling and he's set off to woo Ema. Yep. And just as the arrival of Cuchulain was described in Fled Vrikran, here he comes rolling up magnificent in his chariot. The text is hourly establishing his arrival with the greatest of opulence. Yes, we've got another of these wonderful vivid descriptions of the approaching heroic guest. First, his horses are fully described in long alliterative lists. Yes. Then there's a description of his chariot, followed by the boy himself, including details of his dress and arms. Mm. And finally, the charioteer is given the same extreme treatment. (laughs) Yes. Now, the scene is set by Fiel, that's Fergal's elder daughter. Now, she reports on Cahullan's arrival, much as Maeve's daughter in Fred Brickland. Yes. And here she is, the daughter of the house, watching and giving a description of the approaching stranger. Now, I'm interested in the name of this elder daughter, Feel. It's a word that means generous. If you remember when we were looking at the story of Shinnan, we mm-hmm. had Lindnaw Fela, which was the pool of the generous woman. Fela is often translated as modesty, but I think that's because it's listed as uh, one of the highest feminine virtues. Yeah, I think there's and, more to her than uh, yeah, there as well. And, and that root is about generosity and hospitality. And we have talked before about 
what it means for hospitality from the daughters of the house. Mm -hmm. As we've noted many times before, these formalised descriptions are really important because they act as visualisation aids for an audience listening to an oral performance. Now, the poetic sections would represent the earliest parts of the story, wouldn't they? Yes, but it's a bit difficult, I think, to find any meaningful difference between the Rusk passages, Mm -hmm. which are recognisable, and these long alliterative descriptions. Now, those alliterative descriptions do feel later, they feel more like Middle Irish, both in style and in language, whereas the Rusk is very definitely Old Irish. I think in a way, we've talked about how poetry preserves itself and how it precedes Mm -hmm. prose. And I think that while the Rusk was retained, that as time went on, tellers of this story wanted something in a similar style Mm -hmm. that would add to their telling of this story. So, so the alliterative lists, when the Rusk was becoming a little bit obscure, yeah. created that slightly, slightly antique feeling. Yes, I think so. But also then, obviously, just added to the overall richness of the story. But I think the style is an attempt to keep that sense of the alliterative, dense language. And as I said, they, they are the visual descriptions. Yes, Oh, the equivalent of visual, de- yeah. visual descriptions. Yeah. I do think, though, that they offer some evidence of the original oral forms of the story. Yes. And above all, their early performative nature. Absolutely. And I also think that there will be recognisable attributes in these descriptions, ones that we can't necessarily get at now, but that would have given a contemporary audience clues as to how the story would unfold and what aspects of some very familiar characters will be in play. Tradition-dependent motives. They certainly are, I would think so. Well, the reason that I wanted to stop and comment before we continue to discuss the text Mm. is because that these detailed descriptions are, are... They're found in almost every text. Yeah. And I do think that, as I keep saying, I think they're important. But to a modern audience, they can feel unnecessarily long and somewhat repetitive. Yes. In a podcast episode, we just can't go through every detail, and I'm very aware of this. Yeah, yeah. And we will, as ever, put up links to the full text when we post this episode on the website. Yeah, but what I'm getting at, I think, it might be worth putting all the long descriptions that have to be summarised mm. together as a separate post. Yes. Because it bothers me. We can't go through it, but we have to leave them out. Yeah. And I'd love to include some of your comments and translations that you make in preparation yes. for a podcast that we don't have time to talk about. Yes. Yeah, that that's true. That might work. But for now, let's have a brief look at one of these descriptions. Okay. As the maidens were sitting on the bench of gathering at the dune, they heard something coming towards them. The clatter of the horse's hooves, the creaking of the chariot, the cracking of the straps, the grating of the wheels, the onrush of the hero, the screeching of the weapons. Let one of you see, said Ema, what is that that is coming towards us? And Phil goes to sea. Yes. Now, both horses are described separately. Yes, well, these are no ordinary horses, let us remember. These are those twin horses, the Liamacha, the grey, and Dove Sengland, the glossy black horse. And these were born as twin foals on the same night as Cúchulain in his first birth in the other world. And, of course, they were brought through with him mm-hmm. as his fosterage fee. So they've been raised alongside him. Now, you drew my attention to one element of this description, which concerns one of the horses. And I'd overlooked this completely. Oh, yes, yes. It was this section. 
The hard turf is a flame under his four hard hooves. A flock of swift birds follows. Yeah, I was wondering whether that was the same flock of birds <laughs> that Cuchulain captured on his big chariot excursion around Ulster. Are they still following him around? In that case, are the live deer still attached? <laughs> Now, the description of Cahullin himself has a lot, and here's a very short part of it. Seven red dragon gems on the ground of either of his two eyes, two blue-white blood-red cheeks that breathe sparks and flashes of fire. A ray of love burns in his look. (laughs) Now, I think it's interesting that we've got these dragon gems again. Uh, We did come across them before in Cúchulain's trophy cup that he was given by Mether Van Alil in Flaith Vrikran. They had dragon stones inset in them. So strange when dragon is used in an Irish Mm. story. It it feels out of place, I think. And the dragon stone in particular seems to be a notional borrowing from classical literature Mm. that Mm. they were referred to within the classics and while the Irish authors... Yeah, exactly. It was something exotic. The Irish authors Mm. didn't have anything particular in mind. But Not just, even the dragon. No, just something that was very fancy and foreign, basically. Mm. Exotic. Yeah. Though later on, Cahullin is also described as being sad. Yeah. Uh, it comes up more than once. It does. It happens a couple of times. I suspect we might now translate this as brooding or moody rather than just miserable. Oh, you mean teen fiction, romantic... I- Yeah, I think so. I think so. As long as he's not sort of sparkly. Exactly. I was just thinking exactly the same thing. Now, personally, I really like the description of the charioteer. Oh, well, this is, of course, Loig. He has a very important role to play. He's not just the one holding the reins or passing the hero his spear. He acts as a supporter an encourager, an egger on, and a goader. He's a real example of the companion to heroes archetype, as we met with Mongorn and Mukandar. Yes. Here's his description. There is a charioteer before him in that chariot, a very slender, long-sided, much-freckled man, very curly, bright red hair on his head, a ring of bronze on his brow which prevents his hair from falling over his face, a rod of red gold in his hand with which he keeps the horses in order. I love that description of the hairband, keeping the hair from falling over his face. Very practical for a charioteer. But now we come to a fascinating section of the story. This is the first meeting and discussion between Cúchulain and Emer. Emer clearly knows who he is and is willing to talk with the young man. Yeah, it's a wonderful piece of dialogue. Let's let's start by keeping the dialogue format then. You be Emer. Oh, all right then. She says, may your riding be right. And may you be safe from every harm, he replies. Where have you come from? Oh, from Intida Evna. And where did you sleep? Oh, we slept, he says, in the house of the man who tends the cattle of the plain of Tethra. What was your food there? The ruin of a chariot was cooked for us there, he replies. Which way did you come? Between the two mountains of the wood. And which way did you take after that? Oh, not hard to tell, he says. From the cover of the sea, over the great secret of the men of Dea, over the foam of the two steeds of Owen, over the garden of the Morrigan, over the back of the great sow, over the glen of the great stag, between the god and his seer, (gasps) over the marrow of the wounded woman fed on, between the boar and his dam, over the washing of the horses of Dea, between the king of honour and his servant, Tomonquilla of the four corners of the world, over Alvina. Over the remnants of the great feast, between Dovok and Dovkina, to Luke Lockla Loga, to the daughters of the nephew of Tethra, king of the Fovera. <laughs> well done. <laughs> Phew. Now that was quite a mouthful. Yes. <laughs> 
<laughs> what do you think is going on here? What's he talking about? Well, these are like kennings on Dinhenicus. Cuchulain is showing off his Dinhenicus knowledge, and in a way he's also testing Emer's understanding of it. Do you remember in the last episode when he absconded with Concover's own chariot yeah. and charioteer? And he demanded to be shown around the province, including the landmarks, boundaries, and other features. And he wanted to be taught their histories and customs. Yeah. I felt then that for once he was asking the right questions, yeah. demanding Dinhenica's teaching as befitted his rank and position. As we'll see later, though, Emer outclasses him in both knowledge and in poetic skill. And manages to confuse both Cahullan and probably all the later scribal interpolators as well. Yes. <laughs> But that's for later. We can talk about it much further when we get to that section. But are there a couple of these riddling kennings, do you think, that are worth a comment for now? Well, there's a couple that are quite straightforward, if you like. The first one that I quite like is when he says, we slept in the house of the man who tends the cattle of the plain of Tethra. Now, the cattle of Tethra is quite a well-known kenning for fish. Yeah, it always is. Yes. Yeah. So you find it in the Duan Avergon as well. He talks about tending the cattle of Tethra. And so that really just means a fisherman. So they slept in the house of a fisherman. Yeah. We'll, so, we'll see later on yeah. how uh, it turns out. Yeah. And of course, the plain of Tethra is often a kenning for the sea. He also talks about the cover of the sea. And in the original Irish, that's Teva Mara. It's quite a nice and quite recognisable wordplay on Murthavna, which is Cuchulain's birthplace and mm. his native land. You've got the Mwyr, which is the sea, and then the Thevna, which is the cover. So he's indulging in a little Dinhenicus wordplay. Absolutely. To see whether Ema picks it up yeah. and how she'll manage. Yeah. 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 Well, let's see how that goes. Yeah. Well, back to the story. Now we come to the poem that you gave at the start of this episode. Yes. And that was your translation, wasn't it? Yes. This is another one of those Rusk passages which has an incomplete translation in the published version. But more than being incomplete, some of Meyer's translations are, I think, misleading. And in particular, he has this line, a modest woman is a worm, a scold crow dot dot dot. Now, my version of that was, I am a noble woman and... I am the worm that comes out of the darkness. Mm-hmm. So he's got some of the words right, but the overall sense is wrong, I think. This worm that comes out of the darkness, I find especially interesting. Mm-hmm. That's the nach ni in nuch, the something out of nothing. And we know that that refers to extraordinary conceptions. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm quite sympathetic, this speech of Ema's. Well, it is kind of obscure. <laughs> yes. But a worm, a school crow, this thing that comes out of the darkness, why do you think she applies these terms to herself? Well, I think this is establishing her connection to other world women, and that marks her as a woman of power. Yeah, and of course, the worm that caused miraculous pregnancies mm. really does connect her to the other world, it doesn't does. it? It does, yeah. That she is that which brings the magical through to this world. Yes. She's making quite big claims there. I think so, yeah. But the line that really bothers me is not mentioned in Maya's translation at all. No. And this is the one where she says that she's protecting herself from incest. Yes. Now, when I first read this story many, many years ago, 
I felt that her father's attitude to her was dangerously overprotective, mm. but I couldn't come to any conclusions. The recovery of this line does raise further questions. Yeah, and indeed, we might ask some of those questions to feel the older daughter, the eligible bride. She can make profitable alliances for her father, perhaps their father was hoping to keep Ema for himself. Yeah, and there are later comments that Ema makes about her older sister that mm. are quite funny. Yes. But may have a deeper meaning, mm. but we'll, we'll come to this later. Yeah. What about the school crow for kicking? Well, if our conjectures are correct, perhaps she needs those two heels to give someone a good kicking. Now, there's also several mentions in this poem and in the rest of the text to Tethra, who we've touched on before, especially when we were talking mm. about the cattle of Tethra, the plain of Tethra. Now, Tethra is sometimes understood to be a king of the Favara, sometimes more often, I think, given a as a queen. queen yeah. It tends to always refer to the sea. And in this context, we also find the word Tethra is used to mean a scold crow. That is, is interesting. interesting. Yeah. Tethra, a woman of Tethra. Mm -hmm. Of course... It always reminds me of the Greek goddess Tethys, yeah. who was in fact a titan and the daughter of Gaia and Uranus. Yeah. You know, really one of the earliest ones. Mm. So early that she doesn't have a cult or doesn't, there aren't even any Greek images of her. Yeah. She was a sister of Oceanus and mother of the river gods. So, so definitely around definitely the water and the sea. Water, and, sea. In yeah. fact, there are... There are some people who think that she relates right back to Tiamat, the Babylonian mother goddess. Right. Who separated herself. She was the waters oh, yeah. waters of the sea as against the waters of the air. Mm. But yeah, she does sound like a really ancient figure, but possibly a borrowing? I don't know. It's hard to know with this kind of thing whether it is a, a linguistic borrowing or whether it was a common concept. You it know. hasn't lost the connection. Though. No, no. Don't... Yeah, it's just in passing. Yeah. Anyway, back to the story. Mm -hmm. Now it's Ema's turn to explain just how well she is guarded. Yes. Mind you, it doesn't stop her. She continues with the metaphor and riddle approach. Oh, she certainly does. She's clever. I have champions that follow me to guard me from whoever will take me for their pleasure without Fergal's knowledge of the act. Right, so she's, she, she's well guarded. She's protected against rape, <clears throat> I think, specifically. So Colin says, well, who are the champions that follow you then? And she says, not hard to tell. There's two Lee... Two Lueth, which are Lueth and Lathgaivla, sons of Tethra, Treath and Tresketh, Brian and Bolar, Bos, son of Ovna, Eight Conla, and Con, son of Forgal. Every man of them has the strength of a hundred and the feats of nine, a known verb. Fergal himself, too, hard is it to tell his many powers. He is stronger than any labourer, more learned than any druid, and sharper than any poet. It will be more than all your games to fight against Fergal himself. <laughs> Whoops, here we go again. Mm. Yes, well, I think it's interesting in that list of these guardians, these champions that guard her, it seems to be two nines. It seems what, to two be... Two lists of nine. Yeah, so two known verb battalions, battle that's groups. That's right, the nine is a, is a complete... Yes. A grouping, uh, isn't it? Yeah, like that's what we've, we've come to see. Platoon, I don't know. Yeah. A group of men. Yes. Those, those nines, though, those nines of names. I mean, we have encountered this before. Where was it? Oh, yeah, Toymbophoric. Mm -hmm. Only those were mostly pairs of names. Yeah. And, of course, pairs of made-up names, well, they do tend to appear quite a lot in other places, like 
medieval Arthurian romance. Mm. Um, let me think. Balin and Belin. Right. There's all sorts of weird ideas about how they reflect Baal or Bell. Oh, yeah. But actually, I just think they probably are connected with these made-up names. In time of Freud, anyway, wasn't there more to it than met the eye, or rather ear when translated? They seem more metaphorical than physical characters. Yeah, that was sort of what we felt with that. And I think there's a bit of that going on here as well. I mean, for example, we've got Treath and Tresketh. Now, Treath means a lord. Yeah. But Tresketh means worthless. So they're really a right pair of paradoxes. Absolutely, yeah. In fact, that Tresketh is a borrowing from the Norse where we get trash. So okay. it really is the Lord and the trash. Uh, but the one that I really like, I have to say, is Boss McOvna, because that is just death, son of fear. Good name for uh, a wrestler or something. Doesn't it? <laughs> or a superhero yeah. enemy. Exactly. A yeah. nemesis. Supervillain, yeah. <laughs> Mind you, Cahulin is not not overwhelmed by any of this. Now, he demands to know why Ema doesn't include him in her list of champions. And he goes on to swear that he will make his deeds recounted among the glories of the strength of heroes. Well, Emer doesn't take much notice of that and asks him to be a bit more specific about what he can do. <laughs> oh, right. This is where he really lets rip. When I'm weak in fight, he replies, I defend 20. Uh, sufficient for 30 is a third of my strength, uh, and I alone make combat against 40. Uh, but of course, my protection guards 100. Fords and battlefields are avoided of a fear and dread of me. Hosts and multitudes and armed men flee from the terror of my face. <laughs> There's a wonderfully childish kind of escalation of those numbers. You know, oh, the 20, no, 30, oh, 40, no, 100, well, millions. Well, more than you anyway. Yeah, exactly, infinity plus one. You know, there's something just delightfully kind of childish about that. It is that. childish. Yeah. It's, it's infant playground, isn't yeah, it? isn't it? <laughs> but Ema's put down is quite delightful. It is, yes. She basically says, those are some nice tricks for a young boy, but you haven't quite reached the strength of those chariot fighters, the elite warriors. Yeah, she's going, oh, grow up, will you? Well, yeah, also kind of going, well, you might have played these games in the playground, but you haven't had a fight with some real men yet, have you? Doesn't seem to bother him. He doesn't really no. even seem to notice it. He just starts to <laughs> boast about his social standing. Yeah. Well, he seems to be kind of laying out his prospects for a marriage alliance at this stage. I suppose that's reasonable. Mm. But he points out that he's fostered by Concova, the regional king, of course, mm. and he's being trained... Not for a menial or artisan lifestyle, but as an elite warrior, a chariot fighter, a lord of the land. Yes. And next she asks him specifically about his teachers. Well, I suppose she does want to know his qualifications. Well, it seems so. She asks, who then has taught you all those deeds you boast of? Oh, he's got an answer for that too. Mm -hmm. He replies that fair speaks Chenica has taught me so that I am strong and wise and deft. Wise in judgment. Oh, I'm not forgetful. <laughs> Never forget anything. And I always listen to their speeches. But I don't just listen. I direct the judgments of all the men of Ulster. I don't alter them. But I, through the training of Shenika, I settle their problems, their gifts, and order their spoils. Yes. And this is very interesting because it does seem to be that very specialised legal training mm -hmm. that would only have been available to someone training in very highest grades of poetry and learning. This is something very advanced. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, but it's not only the, the legal poetic because he next talks about his training in food dispensing and food 
food preparation and even agriculture, which he says he's learned from Bloy, who is the Bruggett. That's the next grouping of people yeah. in society, isn't it? Yeah. But he doesn't forget about his warrior training. No, that's, no. that's central, central, of course. And he says there, Fergus has fostered me so that I slay strong warriors through the strength of valour. I am fierce in prowess and I'm able to guard the border of the land against foreign foes. I am a shelter for every poor man. I am a rampart of fight for every wealthy man. And I give comfort to any wretch. Yes. He's really covering the whole lot. Oh, there. yeah. He also mentions Avagon, the poet. Mm. And he says there that he can praise a king for any excellency he has. So he knows about praise poems. Yeah. And he can stand up to any man in valour, in prowess, in wisdom, in splendour, in cleverness, in justice, in boldness. And he says, I'm a match for any chariot fighter. Of course he So is. he's a match for the elite. So he's not going to forget anything. Though. No. But he also doesn't forget to acknowledge the role of Finncoive, who, of course, is his foster mother. And Finncoive's son who's Connell Kernoff. The one I mentioned earlier. Exactly, the one that we met last time, who being very frustrated. Really annoyed with him. <laughs> with the young upstart. But of course, as well as then being uh, Cuchulain's foster brother, is also Cuchulain's uncle. Cuchulain <laughs> even has a word to spare for Cuthford, which he says is for the sake of his mother, Dexter. Although he refers to Cathford as Cathford of the gentle face, which seems a little... Less than apt. Well, maybe it was the only nice thing he could think to say about him. <laughs> Finally, he tells her, I am the darling of the host so that I fight for the honour of all. Then adds, nobly have I been conceived by Lug, son of Cian, son of Ethlu, through the firm deeds that brought Dechtera to the house of Boor in the brook. Mm -hmm. He's including his other world credentials in this description of himself. And he's also connecting himself with Lugdiel Donat. Yes. The master of all crafts. Exactly. And this is what we've just had, is this listing that he is an expert in every craft, in yeah. every class of society. That's right. It reminds me of Lou standing outside the door of Tara, mm -hmm. you know, talking to the doorkeeper. Mm. And everything they want, he can already do. Yes. He's good at Everything. Exactly. And Cucullin has gone through this legal, poetic, aristocratic, martial and even agricultural training mm -hmm. that he has had. Well, next it's Ema's turn to list her own educational accomplishments. Yes. Now, this is interesting section, a little bit dense, as a lot of what Ema says is. She's known for her eloquence. Yes. And she can tie anybody up in knots of her words. <laughs> Including me. Um, <laughs> Including all the later poets and interpreters yes. who looked at what she says. It's never completely clear and it's always clever. Yeah, oh, always, yes. She says that she was educated essentially in the traditional manner and that she knows all the correct behaviour. She has been educated in testing her purity, in the bearing of a queen, in distinguishing signs and marks so that every noble, dignified shape is boasted of her She's from amidst the throng of women's accomplishments. She understands the ordering of society mm. and she understands the etiquette yes. of society. And yes. particularly in any setting, in any court yes. and or any level of society. Yeah, and particularly all those correct procedures that must be followed when you're dealing with people of high status. But there's an undercurrent in what she says of all sorts of metaphor mm. and levels and layers. Yes. We're trying to give it in simple form. Yes, here. yes, which is difficult. It's very really difficult. <laughs> well, now I suppose Cahullan and Ema have established their credentials as equal. 
Cahullan seems to be satisfied. Yes, although Emer does make sure that Cahullan does not already have a wife under his protection. Now that's interesting, mm. but why is that so significant? I mean, after what he says to her next seems to be quite clear. Mm. Why then, said he, should it not be fitting for each of us to enter into sexual union? For I have not hitherto found a woman capable of holding converse with me at a meeting in this manner. Yes, this is one of these places where Meyer's translation is really inadequate to the task because he frames it as though it's a proposal of marriage, but that is not what Cuchelan is proposing. He is proposing a sexual meeting, and that is absolutely fine with Emer. Yeah, they're basically saying, well, you know, how about the two of us getting together? Yeah. And let's be an item, let's make, let's make ourselves an item. Yeah. It's, it's odd because it is written up as though it's just straightforward marriage. Yes. Well, there's still a problem, though. Oh, yeah. Tracy's me. Yeah. yeah. Indeed, Emer says that she might not marry, in air quotes, before her older sister, Feel, is settled. Or a bit like Bianca, may not marry before Catherine in The Taming of the Shrew. Now, was that a legal thing? Is it part of the law? I, I don't think so. I can't think of any example like that. It seems that Emer is still teasing Cuchulain. Because she goes on to suggest that Cuchulain ought to take her older sister instead. After all, she is a byword for handiwork. What? <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, you don't really think it means that, do you? I think it really does. She really is teasing him. <laughs> I think she is. And saying, you know, oh, feels good with her hands. Why don't you go for her instead? <laughs> the teasing is about Cuchulain's immaturity, really. So she's basically accusing him of sexual immaturity. Yeah, yeah. You're just a kid. Yeah. Why don't you go and try out my sister first? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. Cullen's response, though, is quite straightforward. Mm. He seems to have missed the double meaning, the implications, the innuendo completely. I think so, yeah. And all he says, well, it's not her I'm in, I've fallen in love with. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bit sweet, yes. Yeah, it is sweet. But he then goes on to accuse Feel of already having slept with another regional king, with Carbara Neofer, and says that he couldn't sleep with her anyway because he will only sleep with virgins. Now, that's not so sweet. No, it's no, not. It's a bit of a brat again now. Yeah. Mm. It's also a very strange thing for someone in this society to yeah. state. It, it's not that, I mean, that might have been said in a post-Norman mm. world. Other other heroes don't worry about that. They worry about children. They yeah. worry about property. They yeah. worry about status, but not virginity. Yeah. But no wonder Ema's teasing about his sexual immaturity and his inexperience. Absolutely, yeah. But Cucullan hasn't yet finished. Having gone through all of this formal stuff, he starts really just chatting her up in, well, <sighs> quite a crude way. <laughs> Yeah, we did describe it. We first sort of describing it as a clumsy attempt at poetry, but it's not quite that either. Not even, no. Well, look, Kuno Meyer's translation says, While they were thus conversing, Cahullan saw the breasts of the maiden over the bosom of her smock. Then he said, Fair is this plain, the plain of the noble yoke. But it doesn't quite mean that, does it? Uh, no, it certainly doesn't. This noble yoke that Kuno Meyer has analysed, and I can understand why it's the word alking, which got the word yoke in there, but it's a term for a weapons rack. <laughs> Sorry. So in fact, he's saying that's a fine field, the field of the weapons rack. <laughs> Spears in the rack. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I would have thought that the term rack 
yeah for shall we say breast yeah was really a modern americanism it doesn't seem so, I'm afraid. It clearly does. No, I think it <laughs> seems to go back a lot. I hadn't thought about it connecting to weapons racks. Yes, which makes it a bit worse somehow, doesn't it? <laughs> it's quite fun. Yeah. So with this section, I've done a bit of retranslation because Myers doesn't really do justice to this. There's a bit of vulgarisation and inaccuracy going on. Yes, yes, there well, is. Let's hear him as response. Yeah. In your terms. Yes. No one comes to this field, she says, who does not keep his name Silver on each ford from Oshgena Mend at Albina to Bancring Aragad, where Swift Braid breaks the brow of Fethel, which is on the Boyne. I think that what she's saying is that he needs to keep his name clean. He needs to keep faith with her and keep his reputation shiny like silver. And rather than geographical points in this Oshgena Mend and the Bancring Aragad, it puts me in mind of this his encounter first with the sons of Necht and Shkena, mm-hmm. which was his first fight, his first encounter that we heard about last time, and that's the Oshgena Mend, all the way to Bancring Aragad. And that puts me in mind of his encounter with Liban and Fand, who caused... Which is in the future. Yeah. And that's his cause of his lovesickness. When Liban and Fan first appear, they're two birds joined together by a silver chain. And that's the King Aragad, the Ban King Aragad, I think, mm-hmm. in a metaphorical, referential way. So she's using foreknowledge here. Yes, but in almost like that kind of embossed forest So this is creating his own personal dynamic as a sort of geography of his life. I think so, but also of his relationship with Emer, because that Shurdliga Cuncullen is also known as Oinade Evera, the only jealousy of Emer. It's saying from that point in your life where you first had a fight, Mm -hmm. up to the point where you are going to be tested by Libra. Keep your nose clean. Yeah. And I'll be with you. Exactly. Only if you keep your reputation good. I think so. Yeah, it makes sense. Mm. But he doesn't seem to pick it up and he just goes (laughs) on, he just repeats what he says before. I can't do it with your accent. (laughs) That's a fine field, the field of this weapons rack. (laughs) He repeats. Yes. And her response this time is none come to this field who does not encounter the dread Gennet O'Calf of the cow's teat. So she's calling him a child again. She is, yes. Suckling at a cow's teat. Okay. But this dread Gennad, with the understanding of a man, with equal weight of the other, with a blow that strikes three nines in one stroke and spares one man in the middle of each nine. Now, what do you make of that? I know later on he tries to explain it to Loig, but what do you make of it? Well, this is particularly interesting because we have here a mention of the Gennads, and that's one of the Gennadsy Glinna, who are these fearsome phantoms in the valley. And interestingly enough, he meets them later on when he's he's on a journey towards Kuroi in Brickroot's Feast. Yes. And uh, he has to encounter them and yes. deal with them there. Yeah, and it's it's one of his most trying encounters in that story. He really doesn't where, make it exactly, through. Exactly, and Loig has to really oh, that's jibe him right, when he has to, to get him really back into push it. him into fighting yeah. because these phantoms nearly beat him. So I think that's what she's describing, that he will have to get through this 
encounter. <laughs> well, then he still doesn't get it because he repeats the same statement again. That's a fine field, the field of the weapons rack. Now what she says is that none come to this field who has not chanced upon the drinking horn of magical sleep of Suan, the son of Milk Eye, from Samhain to Imbolc, from Imbolc to Bialtina, from Bialtina to the heavy earth of Lunasa. Now, what do you make of that? Any ideas? <laughs> well, it's an interesting one. It's said as though this Ben, it could be a peak or it could be a, a horn, like a drinking horn or musical horn. And it's as though it belongs to a person who's called Suan Mok Ruskmelk, which to me says sleep son of milky eye or something of that sort. But it seems to be something about a suan, which is one of those magical sleeps mm -hmm. that you get mm -hmm. put into by magic or by a sleeping draft. And it has to last from Samhain all the way through to Lunasa, a period of nine months. Now, this could either be the sickness that comes upon him after his meeting with Libon mm -hmm. and Fanond. He has that shared liga, the love sickness. So it could refer to that. But it being nine months, it might refer to the time that his son is gestating. Yeah, yeah, and he's far away from that and forgets about it and doesn't seem to have any knowledge of it. And it's it's also another time when that birth of that son also is a demonstration of his breaking of his promise of fidelity to Ema. Yes, yes. So that's why I think she might be referring to this with foreknowledge. Absolutely, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Well, this seems to complete the process. It is said. It shall be done, says Gohulam. It is offered, it is granted, it is taken, it is accepted, she replies, quite formally. This seems like a formula. It does, doesn't it? Um, it might have been familiar to an audience of the time as part of an oath of fidelity or of betrothal. Part of a betrothal ceremony. Yeah. So tradition dependent. Now it just sounds like, sounds like a group of formal words. Yes. But it may have been as uh, understood as from sickness to health. From... Yes. Or even just saying, I, I do. I wrong. Yeah. Yeah. From sickness to health. Now I've got the thing. In sickness. Thing. In sickness and health. Yeah. All the rest. You see, I don't even remember. <laughs> Clearly forgotten the words of the marriage <laughs> ceremony. <laughs> okay, but she has one more question. She wants to know his full name, both his personal name, which is Anim, and his family name, which is Slonet. And his answers are interesting, aren't they? I think so. First of all, he gives his Slonet this kind of family name or a name of allegiance, let's say. He says, I am Nia, which means either nephew or champion, of the man who came out of the other in the wood of Bive. Well, that's interesting. It reminds me of that story that we told in the last episode. Yes, of the encounter with the phantom on the battlefield. When he was saving Concover. Yes, bringing him, who is his uncle, out of this other world. Where he was nearly off to the other world. Yeah. He yeah. nearly died. Exactly, yeah. I think that definitely mm. smacks of that. And when she asks his Anam, his forename or personal name, he says that he is the Nuida, or hero, of the plague that befalls dogs. Now, that seems quite obvious. Yeah. He seems to be referring back to how he got the name, Cullen, yes. when he stood in for Cullen's dog. Yeah, and regardless of what is mansplained later on in the text, they do seem really to refer to his childhood yeah, deeds. Yeah. And those are stories that would have been very familiar to a contemporary audience, mm. as they are to us right now, because these are the stories we we've been looking at. They just mm. jump out at you. 
So that's it. Cuchulain leaves them then. He finishes with that formal proposal, which, of course, Emer has accepted. But it's as Cuchulain travels home to Owen with, with Loig that the text tries to explain a little more about what was meant by the interaction between the two young people. Yes, and this is a section we've referred to it already. And the excuse for it is that Loig asks Cuchulain directly, what are these mysterious words mm-hmm. that you and Emer spoke to each other? And Cuchulain explains to the charioteer that he is wooing Emer, but he has not yet obtained Fergal's consent, and so he doesn't want the other girls to understand (laughs) what it was they were talking about. So in his eyes, he's tested Emer's intelligence and wit, finding it a match for his own. Mm -hmm. They've clearly understood each other without alerting the other less intelligent people around (laughs) her women. Yes. Now... I don't know, we've come to the conclusion that there's something going on with this section. Maybe added glosses and odd inaccuracies. Yeah, this is what we called the mansplaining, or rather I called it the mansplaining. Let's first, we'll come back to that, but let's have a look at what he says. Yeah. Now, first he says he comes from Intida Evna. Yes, but he doesn't actually explain anything. What he does is gives the two traditional Dinhenica stories, which talk about how Evan Macha gets its name. Now, the story of how Maka races the king's horses. Yes, and, and also the one where Maka lays out the fortifications of Evan with her brooch pin. These two stories are given in full. But it doesn't in any way explain the term in Tita Evna. No, it doesn't. Well, next she asks where he slept, and this matches what you said. Yeah. He's referring to the house of a fisherman. Yes. But when he goes on to tell her that their meat was the ruin of a chariot. I had wondered if uh, he meant that it was a broken wooden chariot used as fuel. Well, it's what's given here as an explanation, I think, is really quite interesting and worth looking at. What he says is that a foal was cooked on the fire for their meal, and that a foal is the ruin of a chariot until it's three weeks old. Right, so putting too young a horse to harness would not be cost-effective, I guess. Well, no, and not good for driving either. Uh, But there's a nice little addition that it is gesh on any man to enter a chariot after having last eaten horse flesh because it's the horse that sustains the chariot. It is interesting, isn't it? Maybe part of this so-called taboo on eating horse meat that still exists. Mm. In England and Ireland. It does, yeah, yeah. No, it's interesting, I know, but it doesn't really add to the understanding of the passage. No. Not in terms Dinhianica's terms. No, it doesn't. Now, the next section concerns his journey from Owen to Luglok to Loga. Now, he doesn't take a direct route, does he? No, but then when did Cuchulain ever go directly to somewhere? He encounters a great many Dinhianica's adventures, if you like. Every place on the route he takes tells a story of his heritage and his background. And this is what was happening in the childhood adventure story, yes. as well as he does his journey around uh, the province. Yes. And again, he makes a similar journey in... Uh, uh, in Fedbrookin, yeah. Now, I was surprised, though, here at the range of stories that are referenced. There are tales which tell of the Tour de Darlan and the events of even the Battle of Moitura. I feel that the later interpolator, or maybe even Cuchulain himself, picked up on a layer within the text that does reflect some of the themes in Moitura. Cuchulain has asserted his relationship to Lug, who's the symbolic saviour of the Tuatha de Danann. 
And Emer has mentioned her relationship to Tethra several times, and Tethra stands in for the Fovera. And so the partnership between Cúchulainn and Emer echoes those relationships between Eru and Elitha, between Bresh and Brig, all of those inter-party yeah. alliances. Yeah, it's quite reasonable if you if you think about it. It's really like sort of adding a classical allusion to a medieval romance. Exactly. And that happens often enough. Yes. Now, we can't go through every Dinchanica story here. <laughs> I really do want to get on to Cullen's further adventures. <laughs> They're quite fun. Yeah. Now, we will, of course, put up a link to the full text as ever. But perhaps some of these sections of the explanations could be added to your sort of highlights document. Yeah, that I was you're talking about that up. earlier. Yeah, with all those descriptions and all those interesting passages put together. And this section is well worth reading for its own sake. But we need to move on now. I'm afraid so. (laughs) You describe this section as mansplaining. (laughs) What exactly do you mean by that? Well, (laughs) at first it seemed to be a lot of later interpolations by the scribe, who seemed to be, yeah, sort of showing off his Dinhenicus knowledge and his knowledge of the wider corpus of text. But as we've gone through and looked at it in more detail, I think that while there are those later additions and glosses, they might be built around a core of Cúchulainn mansplaining to Loy. You mean that Cúchulainn is actually getting it wrong himself? Yeah. Well, Ema is the one who's adept at using the wonderful, compact, poetic language. Yes, but what Cúchulainn has missed the point of a lot of it. <laughs> so, for example, we hear Cúchulainn explaining to Loy what Ema meant when she was saying, you must keep your name silver from Oshkane and Mend to Bancoing Aragad. And that thing of keeping your name silver, the Irish is Covanim Aragad, maybe it's Cúchulainn who doesn't understand that Covanim Aragad. Cúchulainn says that it means he has to kill a hundred people on every ford in the land. He would think that, wouldn't he? Yeah, he he would, exactly. (laughs) This is an idea that seems to have been picked up by the later interpolation as well. Yes. Now, the interpolator understood Cúchulainn's meaning, but may have missed the deeper meaning intended by Ema. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? I think so. Now, some of these explanations are a little bit more obvious. Mm-hmm. For example, there's a piece he says, When I said, fine is this field, the field of the weapons rack, he tells Lorig, I wasn't referring to a real plane, ha ha ha, I was referring to her breast. <laughs> Now, that is a real dirt moment. I think so. <laughs> Him trying to explain what is so obvious. Yes, I was really talking about her boobies. <laughs> yeah. Now, the original audience familiar with Cahullan's tales must have found this hilarious yeah. and very typical. Hopefully as hilarious as I do anyway. <laughs> but there are passages that seem very much in keeping with those later Middle Irish interpolations and glosses. There's a very typical kind of one of those synthetic etymologies around the names of the festivals of Imbolc and Bialtna. And it's one of those places where Bialtna is related to that Canaanite priests of Baal. That would have been very familiar to a Middle Irish audience, I would imagine. Prophet Elijah taking on the priests of Baal and bringing down fire onto his own altar and then going off and killing them all. (laughs) (laughs) My God's better than yours. Yes. And I do think the Irish audience would have been very familiar with the Old Testament stories. Oh, yes. At a later time. Yeah. Yeah. I think there is a bit of both in that passage. I think some of it is Cúchulainn taking up the wrong meaning or only getting a surface meaning. And then I feel as though the Middle Irish scribes or the later scribes have expanded on that idea and decided to gloss every single statement that's made in that exchange. core 
the original audience would have found this uh, child man hero so funny. I think so, yeah. And now it's getting missed. Yes. Yeah. And he's suddenly just a heroic hero who, of course, couldn't have got it wrong. Yeah. Where actually the point of the thing is that he missed the clever one and he missed it. Yeah, yeah, I think so. So back to the story. Cuchulain is going back to Evanmacher, but... The secret is out. The women around Emer have gossiped about this splendid Ooh, young you man who oh, appeared in this yeah. marvellous chariot and how he and Emer had sneaked off and had a little tete-a-tete on their own and then how this young man had left and headed north. And of course, once Fogel hears, he, he guesses the truth. Now, I just love his comment. Yeah. He turns around and goes, that madman from our <laughs> has been here to talk to Emer and the girl has gone off, fallen in love with him. Oh, no. <laughs> and he vows they won't get away with it. No. <laughs> he clearly doesn't approve of Cahullan at all. Well, no, but would you? If it was your teenage daughter? I, I'm a bit sympathetic to Fargo here, I have to say. He creates a plan anyway. He disguises himself as a foreign king and makes a visit to Concover's court, bringing with him, of course, the usual goods and treasures and gifts. He's made welcome, as you would expect. But by the time he's been there three days, he's been hearing all this about Concover's top warriors, Conal Cairnock and Loigra, and of course, Cúchulain himself. And they are just being praised to the hilt. Now, Fogel agrees that they've performed marvellously, but just mentions, you know, in passing, that if Cúchulain were to go to Dovnall the warrior who lived in Alba, Scotland yes. that is, his skill would become even more wonderful. And of course, if he went to see Skarak uh, to learn warrior feats, then he'd obviously excel every warrior throughout the whole of Europe, or maybe the world. Yes, well, Europe was the world at that time. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, but naturally, what Fergal is really hoping is that Cúchulain would go and get himself killed on this particular adventure. After all, if he tries to make <laughs> friends with Skahak, um, she's definitely going to see an end to him. And that's a reasonable expectation, knowing Cuchulain. Uh, yeah, he does tend to get on people's wrong side, doesn't he? Well, as you might expect, Cuchulain is raring to go. To now, himself. what's more, Virgil promises that if he goes and returns, he'll give Cuchulain whatever he wishes. And that is naturally a promise that he doesn't expect to keep. But it is a foolish promise to have made. Right. Well... Cuchulain has goes back to see Emer again and explains that he's off to do this training with the best warriors in Europe. Now, probably with a wry smile at the least, mm. Emer points out that Cuchulain's he's gone and been set up by her father yes. to keep them apart, and she warns him to be on his guard at all times. Yes, and in true romantic fictional style, they make promises of mutual fidelity and chastity unto death. death. <laughs> we'll see how well he manages to keep his side of the bargain on that. Oh, you know, I'm not sure we're going to get to the bit I was looking forward to today. We're not going to meet Skahuk in this episode, are we? Uh, I'm afraid not. Oh, bother, bother, bother. <laughs> it turned out the first part of the wooing of Emer has been just both dense and fascinating. Yeah, and this one's going to take a long time to edit and also I think it's long enough already. Yes, yeah. But Ema's a clever girl, isn't she? She really is, but it's her eloquence that really stands out. She does list it as one of her accomplishments, but it's the most important one in my view. She's using the poetic techniques of an olive, the, like the very highest mm -hmm. grade of poet. And that, of course, includes the imbos furusna, which is a technique for telling the future through poetry. Yeah, and she's 
speaks a lot, which is to do with the foreshadowing of his and their future. Absolutely, yeah. Now, we've met her eloquence before when we looked at the Ulster Women's War of Words at the beginning of Fledfrickran. And of course, it was her poetry that helped establish Cúhullan as, as the best in the land. Now, I do think she shows a huge amount of forbearance and patience <laughs> in her willingness to even countenance taking on the inexperienced child man Cúhullan. Yes. However magnificently he tries to present himself, yeah. I, I think it's Ema's experience and wisdom that is what Cahulla most lacks, mm. if you think about it. Yeah. He, he, he has eloquent moments, but on the whole, he can be very crass. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, fair is that field, the field of the weapons rack, for example. <laughs> oh, well, that's what you'd expect, really. Yeah. <laughs> but if, I think he, Ema feels that if he can stick with her and maybe listen to her, he might be able to keep his name silver, keep his reputation, mm. and maybe even live a little longer than it looks as though he's going to live at the moment. Yeah, but as we'll see, Cuchulain spends his life ignoring what women are trying to tell him. But then, what do you expect from a teenager, quite frankly? <laughs> even so, I don't want to start painting Cuchulain as a tragic hero at the moment. No. I think the audience must have just loved hearing his exploits and all the crazy things he does. Well, also a bit of, what's this Egypt going to do next? (laughs) Do you know, I was wondering, maybe he came across in the way that the modern Marvel superhero might come across Mm. to an audience today. You know, Spider-Man, or or no, even better, the Hulk. Oh, yes. Right down to the warp spasm. (laughs) Absolutely, yeah. Don't make me warp spasm. You wouldn't like me when I warp spasm. (laughs) Mind you, I keep thinking of some of the great cartoon superheroes like the Tick and of course <laughs> Earthworm Jim who are you know I, I would say they have to be modelled on Cucullin <laughs> I never thought of that one <laughs> but in any case I have to say we're already working on the next adventure and it, we're nearly there but we'll finally finally get to meet the redoubtable Scott next time oh yes and, and it know. won't be long no it's nearly ready yeah we'll very soon to- very soon. We'll just have to leave the story for but now. Ema, she's not someone I want to rush over. She's mm. fascinating. Oh, she is. And, and such fun. Oh, she's great. I'm really glad that we did take a bit of time to look at what it is she's saying. So, let's see what Scott can do. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Agalaf Nanagus, conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologists. Chris Thompson and Isolda Obolicorn Carmody. For more information, to subscribe or make a donation, please visit storyarchaeology.com. You can get in touch via email on storyarchaeologists at gmail.com. <laughs>